Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. When I was a kid, I was constantly found in the ER. I know that surprises you, right? In fact, it's, it's, it, was, it got to be a serious joke. Serious in that my parents would say, no jokes, none. Because it seems as though every time I went to the, to the emergency room as a kid, they would keep a record. And, I, and I, I've got scars all over my body from different things that I've done. One time I was running around in circles in the living room. And I slipped, and I hit the TV with my head. See, there's that scar right there. You might be able to see it. The TV was broken, actually. But, you know, they made TVs back in the day with knobs, and they were giant, about that deep and all. You know, we had a TV that big. We had a remote control, too, with a cord. See, I used to be the remote control, but then we got all fancy-like, and we got a remote control. Y'all, you young kids don't know this, but the remote control had a cable that went all the way to the TV. So if you wanted to watch TV, you had to go to the TV, grab the remote, walk back to the couch, and you had to keep the couch only a certain distance because you only had like 15 feet, right? And if you were just far enough, people had to jump over the cord so they didn't trip. Oh, these were the good old days. But I got a scar, and I remember distinctly about how that scar happened. There was another time that I have a, uh, uh, well, I have another scar right here on the side of my leg because I was taking out the trash and I, for some reason, felt like being Santa Claus and I threw the trash over my back and it came down and the piece of glass that was in it just sliced my leg open. I have another scar right about here and that was when I was using a box cutter to cut something in the yard because I was making a Halloween decoration and as I was cutting, I went, and I go, oh, they want to get fake blood now. I got all of, you know. The, the thing about scars is that they tell stories, right? It is a reminder of an event in your life. That's why when I see somebody get hurt, first I check to see if they're alive. Are you breathing? Are you okay? Then it's like, yes, you get a story. You get a scar and chicks dig scars. Or so the song says. That's, you heard that song, right? It's just a joke. But the truth is, every one of us has scars. Now, they're physical reminders, and I know you've got emotional scars and things like that, but I'm talking about the physical scars that people see. It's a reminder of an event. We all need to remember things. Our life is this giant story inside of a greater story of God. And when we see our story in light of God's greater story, we notice that there are certain events in our life that have produced scars or trophies. You go into a house of somebody who's a sports addict and you will find what? You will find trophies. Trophies don't mean as much anymore now because everybody gets a trophy. But it used to be that to get a trophy you had to win or they just told the truth in trophies. Mine was always least improved player. (laughs) Awesome at warming the bench. Sixth place. Well, there were six of us, so somebody had to get it, right? I'll be your guy. You know, and so the trophies tell six stories of success. For my house, I have horns on the wall 
in a very small part of the house because they're not allowed to be anywhere else in the house. But if you walk into my exercise room, don't laugh. It is becoming an exercise room. One day, it will have an exercise piece of equipment in there. But for now, we're just, we're just imagining the possibilities. But you go into my exercise room, and you'll see an elk horn, or an elk horn, a, 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 yeah, I guess that's what you call it, right? It's a giant four by four. It's just one side. It was a shed that was found. Over here, you'll have two um, called, what's they're called skull mounts, the big deer on top and the little deer on the bottom. That was dad's deer and Josh's deer. Just want you to know that's the truth. Over here, there's my big deer from South Dakota, just the skull. And every time I walk through that room, I remember the, I, I, it's almost like I went back and I, and I can think about what we did and how we did it and, and just all the different details. Why do we do things like this? Why do we put horns on the wall if we're a hunter or fish uh, on the wall if we're fishermen? And why do we put trophies in the cases? And why do we wear scars? Because there's a story behind it, and we want everybody to know what was going on. Back in the olden days, we used to take pictures or photos. Today, here's our camera, right? Kodak is out of business at least the, the, the picture department, they never dreamed of a day where this would be the new reality for pictures. Every single day, no matter where you go, you see people doing this or people doing this, right? Here's how you know who they're taking a picture of. If it's this way, it's you. If it's this way, it's them. Why? Because camera adds 10 pounds, and apparently if you do it from above, you don't look quite as big. That's what I'm told anyhow. It's a different angle right? Why do we take pictures like this? Because we want to remember. It used to be that cameras, you had to pull it out and go like this. And there was this thing on the back where you'd open the camera, and there was this little roll of film, and you had to actually pull the film out, stretch it across on these little teeth, kind of like thingamajiggy doomabobs, then you'd shut the back, and then you'd wind it up. Y'all remember these days? The good old days. And you would get 24 or 36 pictures. You didn't, you know, nowadays you're like, back then you were like, one, that's 12 bucks, two, that's 24 bucks. I mean, it was, it was every, every press of the finger, it was, it was money. After you went through the, the whole roll, you'd then go, right? And you'd wind it back up into the little canister, and then you'd go to Walmart, and you would put it in a little bag. These, these are like, what? This is what we had to do to make memories. You put it in a bag, sign your name, and a week or two later, you would get this bag of pictures back, and there would be the negatives, so you could reprint them, and then there would be the actual prints. And then what you would do is you would make yourself a photo album that will sit in your closet forever and ever be looked at. So why do we do this? We do this because we have this need to remember and to relive the, the things of our life that are important to us. Well, in Joshua chapter 4, God told the Israelites to do the same exact thing. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. In Joshua chapter 4, you see the, 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 the next chapter in the Israelite people. It, it, it's the next stage of their life. Now, this is a whole new generation because if you remember, the 
first generation that was with Moses all died off because they were, they were people without faith. They wouldn't believe God, and so God said, since you won't believe, you, believe me, I'm not going to give you what I promised, but I am going to give it to your children and your children's children because I made a promise and I'm going to keep it. So we have this new generation of people following a new leader. The new leader is Joshua. The old leader was Moses. Moses had died. Joshua now was leading the people. And God is about to move them into this, this new reality of life. And God says these words, remember this day. Remember this day, because this is the day that I have fulfilled my promise that I made years, decades, generations before. And I want you to know that I am a God of my word. In, Gen in Joshua chapter 4, the scripture reads this. After the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, Choose twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, take twelve stones from this place in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing and carry them with you and set them down at the place where you spend the night. So let me give you a little background. Pull the lights up, the house lights, please, because I'm having a hard time seeing. Uh, I told them I, I have a new prescription and um, I'm not sure it's correct. So y'all are fuzzy little people right now. So here's the thing. Um, God tells Joshua to command 12 men to go to the middle of the, the Jordan River and to grab 12 stones and then to lug them back to the shore so that they can build an altar. Now, what was going on? This was, again, a pivotal moment in the Israelites' life. This was the moment where God was, was, was making good on His promise. And the reason they went to get stones was because they just crossed a river that should not have been crossed. Now, the Bible says that after the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Why were they crossing the Jordan? Well, because the promised land was on the other side. Just a little side note. Sometimes you can't get to the promised land unless you're willing to cross the river. Sometimes the river is impassable and it's uncrossable, but when God says go to the other side, you better get on to the other side and just start walking and let see how God will calm or stop the river. It was the same exact thing that had happened decades or generations prior when Moses led the children of Israel to the Red Sea. They had an army of the Israel or the Egyptians behind them. They got to the Red Sea and then they started complaining. You let us out here to die. Now we're all going to die. And Moses said, would you just stop? Lord, what are you going to do? God said, I'm going to part the waters. You're going to what? I'm going to part the waters. Okay, I've seen you do good stuff before, so God is able to do whatever he wants to do. When God says, I'm going to do something, you might as well write it down in pen. You might as well write it in permanent marker, not a dry erase, because God will always do it. But here's the key. God will not always do it for you if you have a lack of faith and simply tell, continue to tell God, God, you're not going to do it, you're not going to do it, you're not going to do it. He will always do it, but somebody else may see it done and not you. You know it's possible to miss what God does because of your lack of faith? It's possible that you can complain to God so much that God goes, okay, fine. I'm going to do it because I said I was going to do it. I'm just going to do it in somebody else or with somebody else or through somebody else. 
and you're going to have to watch from a distance. I remember one time I was supposed to be, I said I was supposed to be, I remember one time I had this idea of doing uh, a youth event. This was back when I was in college. And I had this dream of doing this youth event, but I, I never did it because I was afraid that nobody would come. And I was like, you know, if I do this and nobody comes, it's going to be embarrassing. But I really felt like God said to do it. But my fear of failure was bigger than my belief in, the, in God calling me to do it. So I graduated school. Shannon and I left that church to go to seminary in New Orleans. The new guy came in. And I'm not sure if I told somebody else the vision or if I kept it to myself, but guess what they did within six months of me leaving? They did the exact same event that I was going to do, and they had students all over the place. And I watched from a distance, and I said, man, that would have really been cool. I wish I would have believed God. The truth is, when God says it, he's going to do it. The event that you have happening here is the entire nation crossing the Jordan because the Jordan was the only thing standing in the way between them and the promise that God had made to Abraham. And when they crossed the Jordan, God said to Joshua, send 12 guys back to the middle to where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, why would the Ark of the Covenant be in the middle of the Jordan? Well, because in chapter 3 of Joshua, what you find is the method God is going to use to part the waters. Now, God could have done it any way he wanted to. He could have just spoke from heaven, waters part, right? He could have sent a giant mighty wind to push the water back. But he intentionally said to Joshua, Joshua chapter 3, send the Ark of the Covenant with the priest out into the middle of the Jordan. And when the priest stepped foot on the edge of the water, you are going to physically watch the water back up and make a wall of water. And then you are going to see the ground dry up. I don't know if you've ever walked through a piece of property that had been rained on for weeks and weeks, have you? What do you do when you walk through a piece of property that's been rained on? Right? And every single step gets more and more mud all over you. I watched a video just on the TV last night of some people in Louisiana. After one week of rain, they're stepping in the mud and it's impossible to pass. How would it be possible for all of the Israelites to pass across the, or pass through the Jordan unless God totally dried it up just like a desert floor? That's impossible because the Jordan wasn't a new river. It had been there for centuries and decades since God created the heavens and the earth probably. And so it certainly would not have been a hard surface. And yet God said, as soon as the priests step into the edge of the Jordan, the wall of water is going to back up, the land is going to dry, and the people are going to walk across. But he also said these instructions. Have them stay a thousand yards behind the ark. Why? Because he wanted to portray the message that if you follow me, I will lead you where I'm calling you to go, but as you follow me, you should never become so familiar that you take me for granted and don't honor me as the holy God that I am. You know, there's an edge on, or ditch on both sides, right? We can become so familiar with God that we forget he's God, and we can also become so afraid of God that we forget he's Father. God is not just God, and he's not just Father. He is God, our Father, so we have to understand that he is worthy of the fear of the Lord, but he's also Abba, Father. 
We can't be too comfortable on one side or the other. That's the picture that God was giving them. As the Ark of the Covenant goes into the river, you're going to see the water wall up. But the people are supposed to stay far enough from the ark that they recognize that they're following me, but they're following from a distance because I am a holy, almighty God. How long do you suppose it would take to get everyone across, the entire nation across the river? How many were there? A couple hundred? No. A couple thousand? No. The Bible says that 40,000 were fighting men. That's just from a few tribes. So 40,000 were just the fighting men. How many would be the entire nation? A couple hundred thousand plus? Women, children, boys, girls, men, animals, camels. No pigs. No pigs at all. They wouldn't have had pigs. How long would it have taken? You know how long it takes to get us someplace? As, as 70 people or 60 people? You know how long it takes to get five people in a house? Outside to the car? Think about it. Come on. Come on. It's, it's wonderful how you have two different kinds of parents. You have one parent in the car honking and the other parent coming up from behind trying to get stuff, right? I'll let you guess which one is which in our family. This is why we always drive two cars to church. Anybody else drive two cars to church? Is that the reason why? It is, isn't it? Here's the thing. There was, this, um, um, there was this enormous crowd of people that walked across. And after they walked across, one man from each of the tribes of Israel went in, back into the river, the dry land. They grabbed a stone and they put it on their shoulder. And then they started walking. Now, they probably didn't camp right on the other side of the river. They probably had a little bit of ways to go. And so you had these guys carrying the stones. Why were they carrying the stones? Well, the Bible tells us in verse 21 the reason that they carried the stones. Or actually, go back to verse 19. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern limits of Jericho. Right? So they did walk a little bit of ways. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones that they had taken from the Jordan, and he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did at the, or to the Red Sea. You see? He dried up before us until we crossed over. This is that all the people on earth may know that the Lord's, that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. So the reason that they set up the stones, the 12 stones, was to create a monument, was to create a trophy, was to create a scar, so their children would say, huh, that's interesting, why do we have these stones? What is that all about? See, the stones bring out the questions, which is exactly the thing that we should do in our life so that other people will ask the questions as well. What has God done in your life? What has God shown you? How has God moved 
in a way that's like parting the Jordan. How has God been good to you? How has He been faithful to what He said He would do? How has God been present in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of dark valleys? How has God given you joy and hope when there shouldn't have been any? How has God taken a situation and turned it around for His own sake and for His own glory? How has God given you those Godsidents? You know what a Godsident is? It's an accident that was really God in the middle of it so that you can declare the praises of the God who has called you into His purpose. What, what are these things in your life that are worth talking about? Now, question, or actually a statement. Some of you, maybe many of you, were saying to yourself, I'm just, I don't have any of those things. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm very average. How many of you think you're actually very average? Anybody? How many of you would say, I don't really live an extraordinary life? I mean, I make the donuts, I don't make the donuts. I mean, I just, yeah. you remember that commercial? Time to make the donuts. I made the donuts. That's all you ever do, right? Get up, go to work, come back home, eat, go to sleep, get up, go to work. The truth is, you actually do have those moments where God has been present. You just may not remember them. One of our biggest problems is we don't remember the things in our past. If you don't remember, then you're losing the opportunity to match up the hand of God when you need him the next time. What I mean by that is, you're going to be in another situation where you need to trust God. The way you trust God the most is to say, I remember when this same kind of thing happened, and this is what God did. And I remember when it happened another time, and this is what God did. Wait a minute. If God did the same thing five different times, why would I expect this time to be any different? If you don't remember the works of God in your life, then it'll be like Groundhog Day over and over and over. It'd be like 50 first dates over and over and over. I'm sure there's another one out there, but I don't remember it. So how do you remember? You write it down. You take 12 stones of some sort and you build an altar you do something that when you see it, it triggers some memories. It's a photo. It's a trophy. It reminds you this is when God stepped in and intervened. Now, for our house, we took a wall and we made that wall our 12 stones, so to speak. See, a couple years ago, went on a sabbatical, and part of the sabbatical was taking the family for seven weeks across the country in a camper. That'll bless you. If you'll recall, we made Joshua sleep in the back of the truck, and the rest of us slept in the camper. Not a lie. It worked out beautifully. Um, but don't worry, I put a bed in there for I'm in a little camper. So we, we had this trip, and there were all these experiences, experiences that when the family sits down to, to, to talk, one thing or another will spark a story of an event that happened. The meatball story is probably our favorite. Y'all may remember the meatball story. I won't tell you again. But I get goosebumps every time I think of, every time I see meatballs, I'm just happy. You don't, how many of you don't know the meatball story? Okay, I'll tell you the meatball story. <laughs> Mainly because I want to hear it again. I love the meatball story. Listen, 
Some stories are so good you can tell them over and over and over and over and over, and they get better each time. The point, though, is this. The stories of God you can tell over and over and over and over, and they get better every time. So we were in Tahoe. We were really hungry. So we went to this restaurant that was open late. It was a pizza place. We sat down at the table and we ordered. And I noticed on the menu they had giant meatballs. I think you got two meatballs for like 18 bucks. And me being the cheapo I am, didn't get the meatballs, but I secretly wanted them. We ordered pizza instead. Our pizza came and I looked over and I noticed that the table next to us did buy the meatballs. And I watched that they ate one meatball. It was giant. Okay, it was, it was at least that big. It was huge. But the other meatball they didn't eat. And so my hopes were high. I carefully watched how they treated this meatball. Nobody touched it. Nobody stabbed it with a fork. It was completely unadulterated. The waiter came by, they asked for a to-go box and a check, and I watched the waiter put the meatball into the to-go box and then shut it. Then they paid the check, and they got up, and I thought to myself, no, they didn't. They got up from the table, and they walked out, and they left the meatball. My mouth started watering. I got tremors. The Lord has looked upon me with favor. I waited at least six or eight minutes. The waiter then came and started to clear the table. And I said, uh, sir, funny request. But they left their meatball. Do you mind if I have it? So he took the meatball container and he placed it on our table. And I'm thinking to myself, it doesn't get any better than this, but it did. Shannon, of course, being the cautious, careful one, was mortified. She's like, Jeff, what have they come back for it? And of course, my answer was, honey, they've been gone now for 10 minutes. They ain't coming back for a meatball. So we open the meatball, and Hannah gets first dibs. She's sitting there with the meatball in front of her plate or in front of her eating it. And Shannon, with these claws like a cougar, she grabs under my arm. I said, what? She goes, they're back. I said, what? The guy had come back in, and I saw him talking to the maitre d', maitre d', whatever his name was, the guy at the desk. And I'm like, Hannah, Hannah, hide the meatball. He's back. Shannon, of course, is dying. She's just, she's embarrassed. So Hannah closes the box and sticks the meatball on her lap. And I tell everybody at the table, don't say a word. I will kill you. So the guy is asking each of the waitresses, hey, have you seen my meatball? And he comes over and he's standing next to us looking at his table. And Hannah's like, that poor child, she's the rule follower, and she's just dying. She's like, they're going to take me to jail. Take me. I mean, she, it's a serious offense. And the, the waitress actually says, I got your back. And he says, I'm sorry, we cleared the table already. And the guy was just despondent. He was just rejected, and he walked out. 
So she pulled the meatball out back out, and Shannon did not like that at all because it was like, Jeff, I told you he was coming back. And I was like, I know you were right on this one, but 99 out of 100 times, they would never have come back. And we tell that story every time we have anything close to a meatball in our house. And every time we laugh, and every time it pulls us back to a moment that we as a family enjoyed each other. And that's why you set up 12 stones for the things of God. To remind you of your crimes. crimes. (laughs) On our wall is a meatball. No, I'm just kidding. But that is a good idea. Actually, if there's a painter that would paint me a meatball, that would be great. On, on our wall, an entire wall of our house, we put a map of the world. And it started out as a, a remembrance of our trip. But what it has become is these are all the places in the world that God has sent the Spoonie Barger family to do mission in his name. And so we put thumbtacks through the map into the wall, and those thumbtacks increase every time we go somewhere. And you want to know what? Every time, every time somebody new comes to our house, we find them staring at the wall. What are all these things? I say, well, those are all the places we have offshore accounts for all of our money. No, just kidding. (laughs) I say, those are all the places that God has sent us as a family over the last... 20-something years to do ministry and mission in His name. It's a reminder. God said to set up 12 stones. Here's what's really cool. If you continue reading, there were 12 stones set up in an altar in Gilgal so that every time people passed for generations to come, but Joshua went back and set up 12 stones in the middle of the river. In the middle of the river, he set up these 12 stones. Could you imagine somebody out there swimming, right? And they dive down this one particular spot, and they're like, huh, that's strange. There's a mountain of stones. I wonder what this is about. It was a way to never forget that God parted the Jordan and dried the land, moving the people into the promises of God. So... How can you have this attitude of remembering and how can you have this attitude or or this practice of declaring God's praises to everyone who will listen? By the way, everybody loves a good story, right? Every one of us should be a master storyteller. You want to know the way to tell a great story? Tell details. Tell the truth, but make sure you tell it from a way of feeling not just the facts. You know the difference between a great teacher and an okay teacher? A great teacher will engage you, will make you laugh or make you cry. They'll make you feel something. A a not-so-great teacher will just give you the facts and only the facts. Become a storyteller of the stories of God where you engage people and give them a reason to ask. Here are five things that we can do. Psalm 105. Verse 1 says this, Give thanks to Yahweh, call on His name, proclaim His deeds among the people. Okay? The first thing is this, give thanks. A way that you can constantly 
remember the things of God. A way that you can constantly give praises of God's, uh, uh, to God so that people can see his wondrous deeds is to be a person who gives thanks. Now, I want to be, be careful here. I would not be the person who gives thanks for everything always out loud because that's just annoying. Oh, thank you, God, you gave me a parking space right in the front. woo Oh, thank you, God, you gave me a, a buggy right in front of my parking space right in the front. Woohoo! You gave me the last chocolate chip ice cream in the case. I'm not saying don't be thankful. Be thankful, but sometimes out loud is not always the best way to do it. Here's a simple, simple uh, way to remember it. If you're always talking, eventually everybody stops listening. Really. So give thanks, but the give thanks isn't always just out loud. You can be thankful in your heart, and you can have an attitude of thankfulness and an attitude of gratitude. Here's the truth. You cannot be thankful and complain at the same time. It's impossible. You cannot be thankful and angry at the same time. Well, angry without cause. You cannot be thankful and bitter at the same time. Thankfulness really is a prescription for a lot of the things that, that, that eat at us. Just this one change alone will change everything for you. Learn to be thankful and give thanks to God in your heart and sometimes with your mouth, and that will change everything. Now, here's the thing. You take this situation, whatever it might be, could be a good one, it could be a bad one. I can be thankful or I can be critical. In the same situation, I can, I, look, let's say uh, I haven't, say I have an issue. I can either be thankful about something there or I can be critical about something there. Does that make sense what I'm saying? You know the difference between thankfulness and criticism? Your choice. It is completely and entirely within your power to be thankful or to be critical, to be thankful or to complain. I choose to be thankful. You want to know the way I'm thankful? I'm thankful usually through humor. That's usually my expression of thanks. Because I think that if you can laugh about it, even though it's serious, you've seen that there's something about it that's not all that awful. Hannah was in a little fender bender back in March. She ran into the back of a, of a Kia, of all things, right? She saw him in a Kia and decided to hit him in the back, I guess. Dented up her car pretty good, popped the hood up. So I had to make plans to drive over to Tennessee at six hours there. Had to get the car kind of working where she could drive it. And it turns out the hood um, was bent like this and the latch was broken so it wouldn't shut. And so I did what any respecting man would do. I used zip ties to hold it shut. And it worked perfectly, right? Big zip ties, it'll fix all kinds. Duct tape, zip ties, and a Swiss Army knife. That's all you need in life. So she came home a couple of months, or a handful of months later, and I needed to check the oil. So I cut the zip ties, and I checked the oil, and we were all good. And I was like, honey, I'll fix this for you, but I, I just, I got to have a little more time to find a hood. So we zip tied it back together, and she went on back to Tennessee. I get this call. And the call goes something like this. Dad, you're not going to believe what just happened. Well, what happened? My hood flew off. You're what? 
Yeah, my hood flew off. Well, where are you? Downtown Chattanooga on the interstate? You what? The hood apparently overcame the zip ties and opened and then flew off. I said, well, did you hurt anybody? I don't know. I just kept on driving. <laughs> she said, but my passenger looked, and it was okay. It flew off into the ditch. Nobody was hurt behind us. And there was like this brief pause, and then we both busted out laughing. Just hysterical. We could hardly breathe. Now, that was a serious situation. Had somebody been hurt, it would have changed the, the, changed the thing. But why were we laughing? Because we were thankful. Not only now do we have a really cool story, but now she has a car without a hood. And let me tell you, you ain't cool until you've driven a Toyota Camry without a hood. But that thankfulness for her, what were we thankful for? Nobody got hurt. It was hilarious. <laughs> now, I have to fix it because it's a violation of all these things to be thankful for, right? It would have been so much easier, actually it would have been harder to be critical and to be angry. Truth is, give thanks to God, and in doing so, you will proclaim the deeds. Okay, here's the second thing. I shouldn't have told that story. It's too long. Number two, sing to him, sing praise to him. The second thing that you and I can do is to sing to the Lord. Now, Shannon tells me all the time, Jeff, shut up. Why? She says, you don't even know you're singing, do you? I do now. <laughs> you ever get those earworms? Is that what they're called? Is that what they're called? You, you, where you sing the song over and over and over? But it's usually one small little phrase of the song, right? Don't stop believing. Did you just say that? Thank you so much. <laughs> Jesse's girl is in my head right now. I don't know why. You ever noticed how singing moves you in a place that you can't move ordinarily? Right? Because with singing, there are these memories, there are these emotions, there are these feelings. When the scripture says, sing to the Lord, sing praise to Him, the singing is an expression of your thankfulness and your gratitude and to the, and to the uh, uh, declaring the worth of God. When I started the service by saying singing is not the warm-up, singing is part of the main event. We don't sing just to sing. We sing because we're saying the same words to each other and to God. It's powerful and it's important. Uh, we're going, I'm going to, uh, to, to the mountains here um, like we do every year. And without fail, as I'm hiking through the mountain... I'm singing the entire time. You know what determines the song? The cadence of my step. It's just innate. It's natural. I want to invite you to become a singer. Give thanks and start singing. The dwarfs had it right. Whistle while you work. Right? You know the slaves back when they worked in the plantations? What did they do? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Why would they do that? Because it was a way of connecting. It was a way of engaging each other. It was a way of passing the time and, and, and experiencing the same kind of thing together. Certain songs, actually, are powerful, aren't they? 
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea pillows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, even so it is well with my soul. Sing with me. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. I don't know about you, but there is just a, like this peace. Just with a little bit of that song. Sing to the Lord. Sometimes you sing them fast. Sometimes you sing them slow. Sometimes you sing them together. Sometimes you sing them alone. But sing to the Lord. Here's the third thing. Honor His holy name. To honor His holy name, really, it, it can be expressed outward, but it's really an inward thing. Let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. See, in the heart, we honor the Lord. That means we place Him in the rightful place. We put Him at, at, on the throne of our heart, so to speak, and we acknowledge that He goes before us and He fights our battles and He's the one who is the one who opens doors that no man can open, and he closes doors that, once they're closed, no man can shut. The fourth thing is this. Search for the Lord and for his strength. Seek his face always. Search for the Lord. You only search for something that you want or you need. I think a lot of us search for the Lord when we need him. We really should have more of searching for the Lord when we want Him, shouldn't we? You know why we don't want the Lord? Because silver and gold and all those other things look so much prettier, so much shinier, so much more enticing. But when you get to a place where you seek the Lord because you want Him, you know that you've found a rare and priceless jewel. The Bible actually tells us a couple different parables about that, doesn't it? The pearl of great price, right? Man who, who, finds, who buys a field because he sells all he has and he buys the field because there's treasure there. This is what it means to search after the Lord. And fifth, remember the wonderful works he's done. His wonders and the judgments he's pronounced. Don't just remember the good stuff. Also remember the not-so-good stuff. Remember the discipline. Remember the time where God moves and says, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chastise you because of what you did. Why would we remember those things? Because those are the things that keep our hearts and our minds steadfast upon Him. By the way, nobody likes stories that always have a perfect ending because they're fake. Nobody likes stories that are all nice and tidy. The number one way for me to stop watching a movie is when it's so unreal that you look at it and you go, really? Could you not have done something that kind of resembles life? Why does the good guy always win? Because he doesn't. And, and why, why, does, you know, why do things so... No, that's not the way it is. Life is hard. Life is tough. But God is always good. So when you remember... You remember the good and the bad because in the midst of it, you can still see the hand of God at work. Will you close your eyes and bow your head? I want to invite you this morning.
to trust the Lord Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in him, I want you to do that just now. Say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know my sin condemns me, but I trust you, Jesus. I turn from my sin and I turn to you and I ask you to save me because I need you. In Jesus' name. If you're here today and God has spoken to you about something, maybe, maybe there's nothing to do in here, but maybe when you go home there's something for you to do. Maybe there's some stones you need to pile up. Maybe there's something on a wall. Whatever it might be, what is your next step? What will you do with what you've heard today? Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your people. I pray that you would bless us. We ask for your blessing because we want to be a blessing. Lord, as we have been freely given to, Lord, we will freely give. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about Storage One Church at Storage One.